Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name is Tim Clare, and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers, and for anyone who's interested in how stories are made. We've got three goals on this show. To make you write more, to make you write better, and to make you happier as you do so. I think that those things are not only simultaneously achievable, but that they feed into one another. And so much of what this show is about is about doing achieving all of those things. Now, today's episode is going to be a writing ramble, which means it's not scripted. And I don't know what I'm going to be talking about. I currently have a fever. I had like a throat infection yesterday. It was really in my throat and sinuses. Today, it's just gone back into my head. I'm sweating heavily. Uh, I'm a bit feverish. Uh, I get tired going up and down the stairs. I'm not saying that just to complain, but I'm saying if today's episode is completely incoherent, that'll be why, because I don't know where I am really, and I'm in this kind of uh, fever dream state. But I wanted to record one because one, I'm finding it really difficult to do anything else. Uh, so I'm here for kind of like the middle grade stream of consciousness, uh, rudimentary intellection energy. Also because like a lot has gone on this week in writing and I don't feel it's my responsibility to comment on e everything that happens. I, I'm not a gossip page and I, I find the sort of endless mill of writing news and deals and different topics de jour tedious to be honest. But I wanted to record an episode and maybe that's what we're going to cover anyway because I'm interested in it and it brings up some things that it's good to sort of like they're good hooks to hang a hat on. But, you know, if you haven't listened to the show before, I suggest that you start with one of the first page feedback episodes or one of my chats with different authors uh, because I'm really proud of those. Um, it's not that I'm ashamed of doing the uh, writing rambles. I really, really enjoy recording these. Uh, it feels like I'm really lucky to just get to do this and have anyone listen to me at all. But there may be, they tend to be by their nature uh, a little bit baggy round the edges because I'm working out what I feel about a topic as I say it. Um, you know, they're, they're ways of me organising my thoughts, really, um, and coming to a sort of more perfect understanding by talking to myself. No, I talk to other authors as well, but sometimes it's nice to be able to talk like this because when I'm talking to other authors, you know, I'm trying to work on the... Uh, the assumption that best practice is to sometimes shut up and listen to them right so this is a way of me kind of like a of doing a bit of bloodletting i guess if that's not too gory and talk about my own feelings in a way so i don't have to talk over other authors the other thing is because i do lots of interviews with authors sometimes you know they bring up ideas that don't fully come into fruition until a week, two weeks later you'll often hear me say at the end of an issue uh, an end of an episode oh gosh my you know my mind's kind of uh my mind's buzzing oh god i feel like i'm gonna be thinking about this for ages and it's true the next few days those thoughts that they've brought up the new ideas that they've put to me because i always learn something new from speaking to an author I, I i've never chatted done one of these interviews yet never done a chat and they haven't told me something that i didn't know already they haven't revealed something to me made me think about something in a new way so i'm absolutely addicted to doing these chats with authors and i know that makes me sound schmaltzy and maybe 10 years ago i would have been really eye-rolly about that because it sound makes you sound like a bit of a lovey and i know when i've listened to the guardian books pod podcast 
sorry for throwing shade on the Guardian, but I always felt like it was a bit of an askist. Say same on Radio Four. It's one of the reasons why I started doing a podcast because I would listen to what was out there already, and it was just a series of like uh, establishment writers being brought in and just being given sloppy self-congratulatory blowjobs because <laughs> they just went you're an amazing writer and asked really boring questions about their work and then allowed to sort of just fart around with these long maundering tedious self-involved answers i'm sorry i sound like a right arsehole please by all means just go tim i think you're wrong on this you're being very mean-spirited but i just I'd listen to them and i go this doesn't make me want to read these books it makes me hate hate the person and and the and the person interviewing them never seems like they particularly like the book or interested in it because they probably haven't read it they probably haven't had time to read it right so it's just these generic questions around talking points that were in the press release the most and and so the reason so that's one of the reasons why but but what i'm saying is sorry to go back to what i was saying you know, I understand the suspicion of someone going, oh, my God, I'm so interested in this author. Oh, I'm so lucky. You, you sa- It sounds a bit hashtag blessed, right? It sounds like a smug person on Instagram because it sounds like I'm trying to... Maybe, maybe this is my own cynicism, but it maybe sounds a bit like I'm arse-kissing other people in my profession in the hope of getting into some kind of inner clique and being accepted into it and and and, you know there's probably an element of truth in that you know i want i crave acceptance as much as the next hirsute neurotic and uh i would love it if all the authors i have on the show consider tim clare a close personal long-time friend (laughs) whose work (laughs) they cherish and adore of course right but um but i genuinely learn a lot and i think if my uh, enthusiasm about having authors on the show seems uh, open bunny quotes a bit much closed bunny quotes the reason is that writing is an incredibly lonely profession we are the lighthouse keepers of the arts world and and we don't have an office space we don't have a water cooler and that's what doing this show and bringing other authors on so it's not just me talking all the time and I you know I am anxious about I'm anxious full stop but I am anxious about seeming like a know-it-all boorish arsehole because I have this podcast and then I say this is how you should write this is how you should write it is important to me to get other voices on partly as a sort of defence against people going, he seems a bit smug, but but mainly actually just because there are different perspectives and there's different ways you can latch onto things and it's just useful. Like whenever I've started to think of myself as a brilliant writing teacher, and to be honest, I get so many nice emails from listeners uh, having done the Couch to ATK writing boot camp and who listen to the podcast and listen to the first page critiques so many listeners are really generous and I, I appreciate it. I'm not suggesting they're not being sincere, but it's very easy to start thinking of myself if I'm not careful as like a bit of a guru, right? Cause I'm, I'm getting all this nice feedback and it's, it's lovely, but you start going, Hey, well, maybe I am a super good. And, that, and that's why it's really useful for me to speak to other writers 
and realize that there's stuff I don't know that I've still got a lot to learn and also it's why it's really every time I've thought of myself as being a brilliant writing teacher and then gone and taught a writing class <laughs> that's where the rubber meets the road that's where you go oh oh and that's where you come unglued right and as soon as you start thinking we're going to try this out but I'm going to do my best but I'm always open to new ways um that's when I feel like I'm doing a better job every time I've thought I'm brilliant at it um life comes along to uh disabuse me of that misconception but the point about today's episode because it's unscripted like it's a good episode to plug in your ears while you go for a walk or do some washing up or wallpaper the spare room um it's uh it's probably not going to be a super concise episode especially as i've got this fever i'm now started broken out in quite a heavy sweat um so as my temperature fluctuates um it may kind of go through um uh, describe a kind of sinusoidal wave pattern uh, where the x-axis is um lucidity and the y-axis i guess is time um so if i start talking about uh uh fluorescent eggs coming out of um the godhead's eye and hatching new universes you know um that my temperature has gone up um so i wanted to talk this week i've been watching with varying feet moods and um thoughts about a couple of things that have been happening in the writing world and like i say i don't like to do sort of writing news posts or you know this this deal came out or here's the hot thing at the moment i think especially in our social media age and rolling 24-hour news age and with increasingly little review space for books and space for like writing about writing uh our arts culture is in the uk at least but i think probably in america as well and right around the world is hinges more on making stuff newsworthy so either it's about an issue either it is you know uh, an award has been won or it or there's some kind of controversy those tend to be the sort of three things oh there's like a big deal uh there's some kind of like issue that's um related to in the book or there's some kind of controversy those are the only ways it can kind of break out of the tiny sort of sliver of arts pages and and, and i think with twitter and facebook and things like that that's how it gets shared very quickly so like two big things that have happened this week um in the writing world obviously you know uh you know i'm not trying to say that that notre dame burning down obviously has been a big thing and there's been the extinction rebellion protests in the uk in london which i'm sort of oh well and all around the world i'm really glad that those are going on and really proud of all the protesters um speaking up for the environment as you'll know from previous episodes it's been on my mind a lot and i'm i'm really pleased that that's happening but in the writing world in our tiny little sliver of the world the writing world one of the first things is there was uh, on on twitter on monday and tuesday a lot of people were um dragging i believe the uh the, the slightly unpleasant term has it um the novelist ian McEwan, who's got a new book coming out um called uh machines like me where he so he's you'll know if you haven't read any Ian McEwan he's like a middle brow literary fiction novelist tends to have 
Look, I'm gonna sound I'm gonna sound like I'm being mean about him, and I probably am, right? I, so let me just say up front, I'm jealous of Ian McEwan's success. I am jealous of Ian McEwan's success and the attention he gets. I just am, right? I don't enjoy his books. Uh, I read he he wrote. And, and and again, like when I start attacking his work now, as I'm going to, obviously, um, some of you might like his work and feel like I'm personally attacking you and your ta- tastes. I am. <laughs> You're an awful person. Like, no, I'm not. I'm joking. All of that's joke. Look, so he's written this book called Machines Like Me, um, where there's this narrator, Charlie, and he has created a lifelike prototype robot called Adam. Adam, that's clever, isn't it? Do you know what that's a reference to? It's a reference to the to the book of Genesis in the Bible, the first man. That's clever, isn't it? If only another science fiction writer had thought about calling an android Adam. Very. He's he knows his intertextuality, doesn't he, Ian McEwan? That's the be- that's the quality you get from having a litfic author do science fiction. Um and it's it's set in an alternate 1980s. So he he, you know, so he's attempting a bit of science fiction, but he doesn't like. So he's already said he's it's not actually science fiction. He doesn't like science fiction. He doesn't read science fiction. He has. Um, there, there was an Observer interview with him, and it said, um, it, it, it describes. I'll, I'll read you the quote. It says, McEwen has an abiding faith that novels are the best place to examine ethical dilemmas, though he has little time for conventional science fiction. Quote. There could be an opening of a mental space for novelists to explore this future, not in terms of travelling at ten times the speed of light in anti-gravity boots. I'll stop the quote for a second. I'm not sure how wearing anti-gravity boots allows you to do FTL. It's not clear. Maybe Ian McEwen is operating on a greater level of... Maybe he's got the grand unified theory that explains that. Anyway, that's an interesting take begin the quote again not in terms of traveling at 10 times the speed of light in anti-gravity boots but in actually looking at the human dilemmas of being close up to something you know to be artificial but which thinks like you if a machine seems like a human or you can't tell the difference then you jolly well better start thinking about whether it has responsibilities and rights and all the rest end quote so people have started so as you can imagine quite a lot of science fiction authors seeing ian McEwen get a whole uh, f- a fucking massive interview in The Observer and then being on Radio 4 where he was interviewed by, I believe, Andrew Marr, who called him the closest thing Britain has to a national novelist. Um, some people writing science fiction objected to the way he talked about, about, about this and this idea that he was coming into a genre that he this idea of i there could be an opening of a mental space for novelists to explore this future right this idea that this thing this hasn't already been explored and he has spotted an opportunity and he's jumping in and he's somehow capitalizing on it as a liter uh, because science fiction is all about gravity boots and faster than light drives he doesn't even say faster than light drives he wouldn't know that term he says driving at te- traveling at 10 times the speed of light in anti-gravity boots right but <laughs> what are you talking about Ian McEwan he, clear, he clearly hasn't read any science fiction but this presumption that he can come in as a literary fiction author and go over old ground and he is acclaimed by the establishment I think this is the thing anyway look so that caused some 
irritation on Twitter, some anger, quite a lot of mockery. Another thing that happened this week, and I think of clearly more import, uh, although I think some of the issues are related, actually, and that's why I'm putting these two together before I go into it, um, the novelist John Boyne, who wrote uh, The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, was probably his most famous book. He also, I mean, he, he's written loads of books. Uh, I remember when he was back at UEA, he'd written Crippin about Dr. Crippin and things like that. So anyway, he generally writes YA novels. He just he's just released a book called My Brother's Name is Jessica which is out today and it's really published by Puffin. Um, it's about a uh, a, a trans teen uh, called, uh, uh, called Jessica and it's from the perspective of her brother who cannot accept um, when uh, that she her her gender and can't can't accept that she's come out as trans and uh that it's it's you know it's through the perspective of this 12 year old narrator sam and it talks about how he relates to his sister and um him not unbasically accepting it and and then him going through a an arc where he learns to and the people around him and the rest of the family learn to um and him discovering and kind of like educating himself and like I, you know, when I heard that this novel was coming out and the title, uh, a, a, you know, a couple of months ago, I remember thinking, oh, <laughs> wow, um, you know, because 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 John isn't isn't trans, and um, it was in, in the title seemed seemed quite provocative, and uh, I wondered how it would go down, especially in YA in young adult literature there have been multiple uh recent uh i guess like controversies but like big sort of like twitter um i i'm trying to come up with a neutral world word because i don't want to say campaigns because that makes it seem like a conspiracy or that you know people have orchestrated these attacks on people um and it implies that people who have a problem with it are somehow not sincere or doing it purely out of malice and you know i don't know what people's uh motivations are and i've got no reason to not believe their stated motivations but people who have you know criticized especially young adult fiction where it deals with an issue or centers around characters um, of a marginalized group who the author is not a member of um, and that's been increasingly you know the own voices campaign you know people being allowed to write their own stories so if, the, if you're having a character um, and they're of a certain race or, or uh, sexuality or any all sorts of different, uh, 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 you know, marginalised isn't always, I feel, doesn't always cover the quite the entire spectrum of um, intersectionality, intersectional identities. And, I, and, and you can hear me sort of stammering over this as I don't want to sort of stumble into, I'm not, I'm not afraid of saying something wrong and being attacked i just don't want to don't want to hurt people by coming up with a term that's sort of infelicitous or in some way 
just seems dismissive. But you know what I mean, right? That that people that there's been a there's been a big movement saying people should be able to write their own stories. And I think it does relate slightly it's not the same subject, but it, it there is an orthogonal relationship to the Ian McEwan thing where he, the stakes are very much higher, I think. Um, you know, science fiction genre authors or literary fiction authors are not a marginalised group, although they may be members of a marginalised group, but that, that that group itself isn't marginalised. So the stakes are completely different, right? Um, I, I understand that. But this idea of who gets to write what, and I know I've talked about this on the show before, but who gets to write what stories? And I, 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 the reason I bring it up is because actually, <laughs> you know, different authors I've talked to on the show have mentioned it have brought up the concept um and i remember when i it's really it's really in it's an interesting subject to me and other people have talked about it and i'm always mindful of not wanting to be that guy of just wading in and going with my gut and kind of going, well, I think probably this, this and this, right? I don't want to be that guy without considering that there might be elements of it that I haven't considered. Without taking the thing that I've learned from chatting to loads of different authors, which is that lots of people know stuff that I don't. At the same time, this is a podcast about writing, about fiction. And to not cover it at all, and for not to not to come back to it and give it the attention that I think it deserves, to me, even as a white middle class cis male author, you know, who I think for a lot of people, my opinion on this is just not is not required, or at least not valuable, and that's fine. But this is my space to talk about what I like, right? But for me, it's important that I don't just in a way like being you know mostly in not a member of quite a lot of marginalized groups then it's important that I use my quote-unquote platform uh, to consider these things because probably if I don't consider these things and I'm, I'm speaking to any authors out there I think you know whatever marginalized groups you're part of you're probably also if we're taking the language of intersectionality, you're probably also part of some privileged groups as well. So I don't think there's, I don't think there's anyone really who can't, who hasn't got some aspect of privilege to consider, and who, you know, and who there aren't sort of groups to to whom they are, you know, to use a term that I find uncomfortable, but an outsider. Um, then I think we can, we can all consider this, and I think it's, I think it is important to consider it because otherwise one can contribute knowingly or unknowingly to shutting people up to excluding people to perpetuating harmful stereotypes so i want to talk about it um i'm just aware that i you know probably will do so in a in a way that um is a bit is a bit rambly and crap i'm not you know i'm not worried about people getting angry with me i think if people want to get angry that's absolutely fine and um uh you know they're they're welcome to 
Um, I don't actually think I'm going to be saying anything that's usually usually controversial either, but I just want to talk about it because it seems to me really important. And what I don't, you know, it has come up in interviews, but again, I don't want to, I, I try not to, in all my interviews, like, make writers talk about that um unless they bring it up themselves you know it's for me it's important that um it's it's not something that people are expected to kind of like perform on demand or have an opinion about unless they want to talk about it so let's start with john's book so he's written this book called um my brother's name is jessica he's not trans um but he's written this book where this trans teenage girl uh, is viewed through the lens of her younger brother, who is, you know, definitely at least starts off transphobic and doesn't accept it, finds the transition very difficult to accept. Um, and so people have said, why are you centering a non-trans character why is there transphobia in the book you know because this character is the 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 younger brother is you know unpleasant about it he's he 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 doesn't accept it why why are you centering that experience why is this book being given attention um when more attention than say other titles by trans authors who one would think have more of an experience of it and and then um john had put a to publicize his book had put a book in the had put an article in the irish times an opinion piece where he it, it was called why i support now he might have not have chosen the title for his his piece i would say from like writing my own articles you generally don't the newspaper sort of title it how they want but it said why i support trans the title bit provocative was why i support trans rights but reject the word cis so in case you don't know for any listeners you don't know you know if you cis is the is the opposite i guess of a trans it's an old term you have like trans alpine and cis alpine for this side of the mountain and that side of the mountain so uh you know a cis male is 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 someone who um has the accepts the gender they were assigned at birth right that's just as simple as that and um he wrote this article talking about how he'd written the book and he had that line in it and and actually as soon as soon as people started criticizing him on twitter about that article he then apologized on twitter for um for in the article uh criticizing um the writer graham the 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 writer graham linehan um for transphobia and says i and said i don't know whether he's uh well you know i don't know how he feels but i'm sure he's just in his heart he's just doing what he thinks is right just like me so that was his like chief that was his chief um uh contribution on monday and um unsurprisingly that didn't <laughs> that only inflamed the matter and he um he's deleted his twitter having and then there's various articles have come up saying he was hounded off twitter so that's the sort of broad that's the broad overview of what went on um various sort of uh trans writers have said that the novel's full of 
stereotypes of uh, trans folk. There's, it sort of like focuses on Jessica's body quite a lot, um, and it it's got and and it and 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 it has it's all about transphobia and redeeming someone who's being transphobic. So what do I think about this? Because this is what the world's been waiting for is Tim Clare's view. No, I don't. I think, you know, we, everyone who engages with a story and likes writing and reads, has an opinion on this, right? Or has a feeling about it or has a reaction to it. So we've got to, and I think it's, it behoves us to think about these things deeply and work out what we think. So here's what I think about it. Um, I So first of all, I don't enjoy seeing any author um, clearly, uh, you know, probably feeling stressed and sad. Um, And I don't enjoy seeing authors, um, you know, delete their Twitter. Um, I don't enjoy, you know, it's been called cancel culture, and I think that's a bit of a loaded term, but when people talk about an author's intent when they say oh like he you know he obviously didn't care this is you know this is gross he obviously didn't care he just wanted to make money i i don't enjoy seeing those things that talk about somebody's intent rather than what's on the page because i think we don't know somebody's intent and i think that i'm oh i'm always uncomfortable with that um because I think that must be quite hurtful. So wait, wait, wait a second. I'm just, I'm getting there. Um, so that's the one thing. I don't want to feel like I'm joining in on a kind of pylon where it's quite easy to score um, cultural capital by simply saying, oh, what a disgusting person he is. Um, and also, cause I, you know, I, I've, I'm not friends with John, but I have met him. Um, he seemed very nice i doubt whether he is uh i i very much doubt whether he came in to this wrote this book going i'm gonna write a book deliberately malicious transphobic book in the hope of making money because that doesn't i mean that doesn't work like that wouldn't make money right so i suspect he thought he was writing something and he has said in since he, he thought he was writing something that would be helpful However, I don't think he's done that. I think there's a lot of people judge have judged the book on the synopsis and the title, and so then the response is, "Well, you you can't criticize it till you read the book." Now that's difficult, right? Because if you're saying you can't cr- criticize a book or object to it until you've read the entire book, what we're saying is. You have to pay the author to decide whether they defamed you, basically, whether they're a bigot, <laughs> whether or whether what they've written is bigoted. That's not okay, right? You can't expect uh, you can't expect trans people to buy every book that comes out that has a trans character in it, um, and then write a book report before they're allowed to object to it, right? That's not reasonable that's a crazy that's a ridiculous burden they've got better things to do we've all got better things to do right than be the book police and so some you know some uh figures like uh performance poet 
uh, Jay Holm um, has have, have, have you know actually read it and given their feedback um, and so that you know they've people some people have given informed opinions some people have given opinions based on things like the title which some people have said is intrinsically transphobic my brother's name is jessica is misgendering the main character so and people have given context as well and said look like this book work deals in various stereotypes um that are just it's just it's just going over old ground um, so whatever John's intent, uh, that pe- you know, people are saying this is hurtful, and it seems I don't. So then there's a whole backlash of people saying, "Well, are you saying that nobody can write stories if they're not from that group? You're not allowed." Uh, and and this is like. This is the kind of can of worms, right? So, so, so his response to all of this is: in writing, my brother's name is Jessica. So, this is a quote from the bookseller: "Quote in writing, my brother's name is Jessica. My hope is that children and young adults, particularly ones who are perhaps not already familiar with transgender issues, will come to this book and start to understand that anyone struggling with those issues needs support and compassion, not judgment. I've tried to write the best novel that I can. I might have succeeded or I might have failed, but I stand by it. I welcome debate, and I'm interested in people's views on the subject." I do not believe that the trans community bears any relationship to or responsibility for the abuse I have received online. I stand 100% behind all trans people. I respect them as brave pioneers. I applaud their determination to live authentic lives despite the abuse they also receive. And I will always do so. Um, End quote. So I, I think some people have already said, you know, in the trans community have said, well, if you don't accept the word cis, then you're not supporting us. If you put out this book and then you don't engage and listen to people's objections of it, then you're not 100% behind all trans people. If you apologise to Graham Lennon, um, which I think was a really foolish move of his, actually, and showed, I think, to a lot of people that he he wasn't actually engaged in the issues affecting the community, that he wasn't... Um, he hadn't done his research and 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 again look i don't want to get into it too much but like uh you know like he said well i'm sure he's you know doing what he thinks is best well i you know i've got a personal connection to the whole uh, graham linehan someone who's someone i know and have you know sit, seen about a bit and i don't want to really get into that but like it's kind of not the it's kind of not the point what what you think someone might or might not see in their heart to like at that moment pick out someone who spends most of their time on twitter sharing and boosting and coming out with horrendously transphobic things right to go well maybe they got a good heart well maybe they have you know i believe that you know that human beings aren't monsters and even people who do terrible things uh are worthy of you know have value and have humanity i but i think there's a time and a place to bring that up and and it's not it's not when other people are telling you 
are telling you their why they're why what you you've done in their opinion hurts them, right? And that you're making money out of it's a now now can we let's just step away from this a second and just engage with this idea of authenticity because I wrote about this on Twitter this week and I want to go into it a little bit and and you know I realize I'm jumping around here and maybe this is completely incoherent in which case um I'm working this out as I go along myself I think it's a really complicated subject this is the other thing as well it's like when you start talking about these things and you talk about them with nuance actually it gets really unsatisfying really quickly because instead of coming out with these like punchy maxims that say fuck you fuck this here's my like little sort of moral quiddity that I come out with that, that kind of like encapsulates it all in a sentence you 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 start talking about nuance and then it gets really murky really quickly and it also sometimes gets a little bit, bit, bit academic and boring and that can seem like bloodless and like someone doesn't care like especially when you're talking about something that doesn't do that you don't don't directly have a stake in as soon as I start like sitting back like lighting my pipe and going well the thing you've got to remember about marginalized groups isn't people might reasonably go well Tim you don't fucking this isn't your life that you're just like chopping up and dissecting and um weighing on your putting through your little fucking in literature lab with your literature degree and MA and going well, here let me talk about the tropes let me talk about the uh, let me talk about the the scene and uh, what's really well the uh, the arts we've got to remember are sacrosanct back in ancient Greece I believe it was you know like it's, and people go fuck you like <laughs> like how dare you like think that you're the person to talk about this i you know i get that absolutely <laughs> you're probably right um uh but i also think that people who aren't necessarily directly affected by it can do some of the emotional labor of talking about stuff and talking to other people who aren't maybe directly affected by it and going look like look here's like i'm going to talk to you about this without like yet without sort of calling you a prick because i can i can do that because i'm not like we're not like holding my life at at stake so you know that's what that's why i'm i'm talking about it a bit but i i wrote a bit about authenticity and this idea somebody had posted um a white author had posted something on twitter saying calling to speaking to other white authors and asking directly asking the question it wasn't just re- rhetorical it said like no i'm asking this um so that's why i felt like it was okay for me to go into it it was you know because i was responding to another white author who was asking about it, saying why can't why can't we why are we so desperate to steal um other cultures mythologies uh their legends their uh, and, and their own lives why why can't why are we unhappy with our own is it because the other cultures are more exotic more interesting um sort of more fascinating in a way why aren't we writing more about irish myths why aren't we writing uh, uh, more about norwegian uh, uh myths why aren't we writing about more about english myths uh you know we've got our own myths why do we feel the need to steal other people's and and i felt that was not something I agree with at all what this person was saying and I wanted to give some reasons and 
I feel honestly, and I could be wrong. Like I, 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 I feel strongly about it, but I don't want to use sort of like you know I've, I've got strong feeling about this principle as a way of not being receptive to people having different views. I hope that I can always keep uh, learning. But I don't. I don't feel any need to kind of like tug my forelock and go cap in hand and and and, and say well, I d- don't have an opinion on this. I've got a strong opinion about it. Um, it's just that that opinion might change if better information comes along, and I hope I can continue to do that. Look, I think it's absolutely gross to start segregating um, what parts of the world we can talk about based on blood. Um, it's ahistorical. It is, you know, like the amount of Britain has been invaded and reinvaded over and over again. The mix of cultures that are in just, you know, parts of England and Wales, which are distinct countries, by the way. The the idea that you're flattening that down into white myth is a historical. Um, it erases swathes of different cultures. Um, English myth isn't Welsh myth, isn't Scottish myth, isn't Irish myth, isn't isn't Dutch myth, isn't you know Scandin isn't parts of Scandinavia, isn't Finnish myth, isn't German myth, you know like isn't isn't Russian myth. Like the idea that all of these things are somehow just one monolith is is just cr- like it's just flatly false before you get anywhere else with the the problems about that which is like saying how are you saying it's this idea of like cultural and racial racial essentialism that goes oh there are these myths that you know aside from the fact that britain by the way like the king james bible has like affected so much of our turns of phrase um all the things in that you know as my understanding is that the the, the books of the the bible was not written in kent right like like that has come and, and as soon as you start saying oh that's a that's a quintessentially english thing and of course the king james bible that actual translation is british but then of course you know you've got the we've got so many different cultures coming in and changing and, and changing and affecting our language the idea that you go here's white myth and you flatten it down and you flatten it down you know the creation of whiteness is its whole own thing right that's its whole own moral panic like if you look at the like memes of the far right of you know stormfront and places like that they have their pictures of um you know crusaders next to roman centurions next to like highlanders high like you know like these kind of lairds with um you know great claymores next to uh vikings like they're going oh look this is the great this is the great kind of white diaspora right next to a cowboy um it's gross that creation of whiteness as a monolith is and then tying it into common myths that is exactly what the like the neo druidic movement did in this kind of like in the in the sort of sixties when Britain had this you know the neo pagan revival neo druidic revival um, which was a you know a a moral panic against you know immigration immigration in Britain from the the Caribbean um, immigration in uh, into Britain from India people were people were going oh we need we're going to get the, find this common white culture that that just takes in bits of like 
Ireland and Wales and like mashes it all together and says, oh, here's King Arthur. Here's, uh, you know, here's the Kalevala, you know, the Finnish uh, national epic, which is what um, Tolkien became obsessed by. Translating nearly failed his degree because he was so obsessed by it and then ended up basing a lot of Lord of the Rings on the Kalevala. These things like we pull on different threads, right? But they come from distinct cultures and the creation of whiteness is, is, is you know, has largely been a, a like a, a fascist project, a fascist ethno-nationalist project. So to say to authors, you you need to deal with white legends is to is, is just straight out of chaining myth to blood is gross and problematic i'm sorry to like drop into the language of like the discourse but it is you can't and um, and then by the logic of of cultural appropriation and cultural assimilation right it says that whiteness is the dominant culture right so it makes that as an assumption which you know it's such like a block a block term that it's kind of problematic in itself it erases whole things it is really really ethnocentric and also it like it centers in parts of in our part of the world right and it doesn't talk about it doesn't accept that there are other cultural centers in the world it's just like the locus of culture is great britain or america or whatever and that's the seat that is crazy in itself and so ahistorical and so untrue like but it takes that and it says this is a dominant culture if you are a a white writer, you write about white myth, which we're defining as every everywhere across, you know, Europe, Russia, America. That's all, you know, that's all uh, quote unquote white myth. But you can't write about uh, myth from other countries. However, people living in the diaspora and living, uh, you know, writers of color can write about those things. Because that's cultural uh, assimilation. They're in the the that's part of the culture that they've had sort of forced upon them. So they know about it, and they they they're, they're qualified to write it. And they're um, anything they write will inherently be a critique of it. And they can also write about their own culture. Their you know their own meaning uh, is defined sort of and how tightly you make that de- definition, whether it's any marginalized group, whether it is from the country they come from whether it's from the region they come from is is defined and not defined by all sorts of all sorts of different things that are then you know depending on who you're talking to and that becomes a source of anxiety in itself like how tightly do you throttle that the problem with that is it means that the only true fungible culture the only culture that is allowed to be that everyone can cosplay as that everyone can share that everyone can write about the only true lingua franca the only currency that everyone in the world can pass around ends up being what you've defined as white culture because anyone can write anyone's allowed to write about say trolls or elves that's fine because that's white culture and it, and it is the supposedly dominant culture and so 
we can all pretend to be elves. Now, look, I am not saying this isn't me saying why can't why can't I cosplay in blackface? I'm not saying that. I, I hope we can have some like nuance in this debate. What I'm saying is the idea that say uh, I don't know, like that a uh, that a white author can't uh, write. I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a sort of uh, something. I mean, the thing is that, like, so many of these different... I did, like, so many of these different kind of, like, monsters and ideas come from different cultures anyway and then have been, like, mashed together. You know, the idea that you can't have a white writer researching and writing about or adapting some uh, monster from another country's myth you know like a like a tanuki or something like that that you can't have that featuring in a, in a it just seems to me to be to be silly right it seems more than silly, it seems to me that it ends up being divisive and it leads down a very dark place because what ends up happening is that then writers of colour are expected to be essentially like emissaries for their designated home culture right they end up being asked to be to perform their and this happens across all marginalized groups you're asked to perform your marginalization and that is so often actually that is so often um asked to be done um via some performance of pain or suffering as well that that is what is not explicitly asked for but rewarded what is seen as the proper way to talk about it so it means that people are siloed into these reductive, disfiguring categories that I think hurts everyone. And that ultimately opens its itself up to great anxieties about authenticity and identity because that is your... That is your passport to being able to have the right to write about what you want, uh, what you're writing about. And if anyone threatens that, which, you know, if you are biracial, if you have lived in multiple countries, immediately those things start to... If, if your character is like you in one way, like has the same ethnic background as you, but not like you in another way, a different gender, different sexuality, whatever immediately you are opening the possibility of being of of losing that access and being absolutely bodied for it absolutely ripped apart because the assumption is that when you write about these experiences what you're doing is you are doing it as an act of liberation for the groups you're writing about. Not to tell a story, not to tell one of multiple narratives, not with the assumption that dozens, hundreds of people um, can write stories about this thing, but you, you are the only 
one who is allowed to write about this or you're going to be one of a few people so like you better get this right because you are carrying behind you the entire community which can be really great for people who write something that fits within that mold that is uh, uh, approved um that the largely let's face it white middle class establishment uh decide fit their idea of what they want people from that background um to be writing but <laughs> it just it just to me what what it brings with it is a, a few writers for whom that will be perfect and a great body of writers behind them for whom that is going to be an incredibly restraining disfiguring stressful silencing homogenizing force and i've seen it in you only have to look the re like here's what you know i may be here sort of like crying you know it's, people are going to think i'm what they call um concern trolling that i'm saying oh i'm i look i agree in principle but uh i'm just worried about and then introduce something that i'm not really worried about but i'm just you know i'm just fluffing up a bit of moral panic um because i'm not you know, because I don't want to listen to people. You you may very well be right, but what I'm saying is, I've seen it in the reason I'm kind of like marching about uh, on the battlements, Cassandra, like warning of this, is because I've seen what's happened in slam, slam poetry versus performance poetry in the UK. Look, I've you know I can speak to this. I've been a performance poet for like 15 years or something crazy, and I've seen the UK tradition of poetry. Uh, performance poetry versus the american tradition of slam and then i've seen like u.s style slam uh, in places like in all over europe i've seen it gotten to see slams in australia so i can tell you what happens slam you know for the last 20 years has um it foregrounded in many ways like the slam environment w has been ahead of the literary and arts environment um by many years but slam you know did this wonderful thing of making a space where you didn't you weren't praised for your poetry for what awards you'd won for basically being part of white middle-class academia and it gave a space for stuff that just appeal appealed directly to audiences um to be performed right so you get up and you perform it doesn't matter who you are theoretically and then in the standard slam you know you get some judges or people in the audience give you marks out of 10 for the poem you've just done and the person who gets the highest marks wins but what quickly happened in slam is people tend to respond to poems to really good stories in poems as opposed to you know technical ability or imagery and so what starts to happen in American Slam is performances get very, very polished, very slick. And they tend to centre the person who's speaking. And they tend tended to start uh, leveraging. They tended to, in my, you know, they tended to commodify marginalisation. What they would say is, here's my story. Here's how I suffered. Here's how I'm not going to, I'm not going to face it anymore. And, you know, I'm not going to put up with it. Uh, and then the audience feel like they've gone through something, that something has been shared very personally with them. And which would be fine, except that 
this is taking place in a competitive environment where poems are numerically scored and where often the win winner gets money. So it's suddenly a situation where you are strongly disincentivized to make your poems to nuanced, to complicate arguments, to admit too many personal flaws. And you start seeing more and more, kind of like, you start seeing more and more people sort of like leaning into the performance of performing their wounds, basically. Performing their marginalisation is valued only in so far as it is a source of suffering and pain. And as slam develops, you start, there's a slam voice everyone starts delivering their poems in exactly the same cadence with exactly the same beats with exactly the same shape first minute you develop the problems that you face then at the end of minute one there's a turn then there's like a long stream of uh vaguely related images um and, and with some defiance in and then it rises to a crescendo and then there's an applause and actually what slam has done and I, you know i've seen it you know going to australia and hearing you know poets from uh you know poets from play you know fiji or from singapore or from vietnam delivering getting up on stage and their accent changing to a mid-Atlantic American one and then delivering poems that sound exactly the same as American wasp <laughs> performers, right? And and I see it in the UK as well. Now, the wonderful thing about the UK performance poetry scene is it's been very... It's very diverse not only in the people who are performing stuff, but in the styles they do. It's rough around the edges. Performance poets in the UK are allowed to flub their words, are allowed to be shy and crap and stumble over things. They're allowed to be surreal. They're allowed to be unsure. They're allowed to be other characters. They're allowed to go back on something. They're allowed to be absurd you're not allowed to do those things in American slam style if you want to win. Those things are, there are norms within that group that ruthlessly weed those things out until a, a slam poem written in the last month will sound exactly the same as a slam poem written 20 years ago. Exactly the same cadences, exactly the same delivery. Because it commodifies... It, com it has commodified uh, marginalisation in a way that... And it's homogenised those voices in a way that's choked them all out. In a way that has made people speak. And then you get white middle class or, um, slam authors who go up and they'll, they'll do a whole piece about... You know, what where they've got, a, where they've got like a lisp... And that and, and and people are like woo because they because they and they frame it and it's gross in exactly the same way as someone talking in those spaces about sexual abuse because there's this just completely disfiguring 
overarching mold of like we want to celebrate these voices but only if they speak in this one uncomplicated way and i think that is the main fault of that is on the mainstream world for not breaking down the barriers and allowing people to write multiple stories complicated stories flawed characters in all these different ways in all these different spaces and so you end up getting a space that has this you know i think ultimately destructive tendency i'm very ambivalent about it i think it it's great to have spaces where people can celebrate and talk and speak speak their truth but as soon as it starts getting like just folded into cliches into a standard voice into a you speak and deliver like this and then we're going to rate you out of 10 that is just not that's not a great environment that's not an environment for intimacy not for genuine intimacy that's not an environment for connection that is an environment for performative wounds and it starts to become a demand. I need to see you wounded. I need to see... You need to bleed for me. And I think that there's something that makes me deeply uncomfortable about that. And not just in a, you know, like Albert Speer, it offends my middle-class sense of order, kind of like, oh dear, why can't... It's not about... I, I, I love poems where people get angry, where people cry, where people get passionate, where people swear, where people say the wrong thing i i love that messiness and beauty of life but as soon as you have a a a medium where that purports to lift up and support marginalized voices but at the same time only allows to speak them in allows them to speak in certain things in one very specific way and they have to be talking about their marginalisation as well, by the way. It's not okay to just talk about something else. That, to me, is gross. Now, you may think, Tim, you have a... You clearly have a dog in this fight. You have an ulterior motive. You're going, look, I I support the, these, these people's right to speak in principle, but uh, why can't they do it in a different way? It's like, well, why don't you... Well, you, you know exactly why they fucking can't do that, Tim. It's because you know the system of which you are part has not shown any interest in them unless people speak in a certain way well you know this is what i'm saying and i i you know this i may be there may be all sorts of things wrong with what i'm saying i'm always working towards a more perfect understanding and i don't have the ability to you know i don't put on nights i don't publish people so you know it, it i you know i can still have these musings and it's not going to influence anyone especially i'm just hopefully throwing things out here that you can start thinking about the reason that i sort of push for this kind of i guess what some people see like false universalism is because i think that is what liberates us all to write now who is allowed to write what do we just get onto that right because I've talked about this in an episode before and I'd like to go over it a bit again. Who's allowed to write what? Well, who has the right to write some, some, you know, about a certain character? So first of all, um, let's define our terms quickly. Who has the right? Well, who has the legal right? Well, you're allowed to write about anyth 
you're allowed to write about anyone you fucking like. That is just like a legal fact, except if they're alive and uh, they're likely, what you're writing is likely to be defamatory about them. Um, in the UK, I think, you know, you, you would probably struggle. And in, there's, you know, countries around the world where you're not allowed to write what you want because of, you know, laws against insulting the government, laws against insulting royalty. Um, there may be, you know, in America, there's slightly better protections for freedom of speech and parody. You're not allowed to write um, licensed material generally unless you can defend it as parody so aside from those restrictions which are largely to do with like you know large powerful groups you're allowed to write who you want you legally have the right to write what you want you legally have the right to write what you want that's just a fact do you have the moral right to write what you want well that is a very very different question do you have the ethical right to write about who you want well people you know many people from different groups have said if you write about let's say you wrote a series of stereotypes in a novel about robots you wrote a novel like Ian McEwan. You wrote a, you write a novel, and there's loads of robot stereotypes. There's a robot comes in and goes beep beep boop boop. I am a robot, malfunctioning, malfunctioning, and then it's like head spins around and sparks come out his ears, um, <laughs> and then and then at the end, like the robot's kind of going crazy, and it's it's got someone hostage, and then the and then the uh, narrator goes one plus one is egg. And like the robot goes, does not compute, and like and powers down. Well, that's like a series of clumsy, ancient, creaky stereotypes about robots, right? But there's not, there's not like a, but there won't be robots reading the book. There won't be robots in the reader's workplaces. There won't be, there aren't robot authors who are trying to put work out to that that are then gonna and then you've written your book about robots and then there is there's no room for theirs you're not taking up column inches from robots you can have a load of really shitty very boring stereotypes in your book about robots and the only person it really hurts is or excludes are readers who know a lot about who've read a lot of stories with robots in where they go this is boring and it might frustrate other science fiction writers who've already been writing much more sophisticated stuff than you, it doesn't really hurt anyone, right? It doesn't really hurt anyone. So, you know, whether you do your research or not, it doesn't matter whether you... Now, if you were a robot and you wrote all those shitty um, tropes, well, you just would be really unlikely, or people would interpret it as a parody, right? They go, oh, you are parodying people's shitty writing about robots because you wouldn't possibly think that this is you. So that is my bad analogy for for why it's kind of okay, right? Is that there's there's no there's no real world impact about writing a, a shitty writing stereotypes, lazy stereotypes about something that isn't a person or a group of people. Um, if you just write a bunch of shitty stereotypes about, I don't know, like skiing or something, and you get all your facts wrong about how to ski, it um it doesn't really hurt 
anyone. Some people, if people go skiing and they read it, they might go, I feel slightly knocked out of this narrative. I feel almost excluded from this narrative because it's not written by a skier or someone who appears to have any interest in skiing. Um, it's just for a non-skiing audience. Ugh. But like skiers aren't skiers aren't an oppressed group, right? So quite the opposite. So it doesn't hurt it doesn't hurt anyone. And I know look, I know for some of you this is like so 101 that you'll be insulted and angry that I'm doing it, but I'm doing it for people who maybe, you know, haven't thought about it so much or you know I'm and I'm refining it for myself. But as soon as you start dealing with actual human beings and especially human beings who have been traditionally excluded from writing novels and who are traditionally excluded from being in novels then the stakes change the stakes change and if you start dealing in without realizing it if you start falling into tropes that are second third hand that aren't based on people you know but are based on other stories that you've read that that feature people from that group that are kind of based on ambient cultural noise that you've kind of unconsciously soaked up then you might start running into trouble and the thing with YA with young adult is often young adult fiction is very tropey often it simplifies emotional conflicts often the dialogue isn't as isn't as i mean look bluntly it isn't as sophisticated as it might be in an adult book it's not it's it's a little more on the nose right it's it's a little more just gets to the point and it's you know ya is does deal more in tropes and sort of plot stereotypes right and it tends to get away with that one because and it and it nicks lock stock and barrel whole worlds and you know we'd like the sort of big rush of teen dystopias and stuff like that and hunger games you know they're quite openly like nicked stuff from other books or just regurgitated stuff and, and came out with these tropes and, and and because teenagers haven't seen it before they go ooh, or adults read it and, and let's point out most why is written is read not by teenagers by but by adults um that's just like a marketing fact that more adults read YA than teenagers and it's all written by adults so the term young adult is a little bit of a misnomer because that isn't its chief audience and those aren't the people who are responding to these things right then they're not teenagers who are who are um complaining about these things um but it does tend to operate in a simplified certainly all the way I've ever read, in a simplified, slightly more tropey world. Which is fine if you're doing a story about cybercrime, right? It's less good when you're just taking something from the real world. And when, say, for example, you know, you're writing this book that, that John has, um, when the story... Is a is when someone's marginalization is the story so there's there's no without people being transphobic there is no book in my brother's name is jessica right there is no book without that without that central conflict the the the, the entire engine of the plot is 
Jessica comes out as trans. That's it. Like, there's nothing else. There's nothing else to for it to turn around. I mean, the characters' reactions and how it affects their lives is in it. But that's it. And people didn't complain so much when he did his book, The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, which was set during the Holocaust and was, you know, again, like it was quite, it was quite tropey. It was quite schmaltzy. It was quite emotionally manipulative. And that got loads of praise and people were like, this is wonderful. This is, this is amazing. Um, because the re- the readership there didn't feel like they had a personal stake in it. Um, it was just as, it dealt in just as many cliches, but people just didn't feel as personally affected by it. So, you know, I feel like what's happened here is that John is just repeating something that has worked for him on previous novels. And the world is changing. People's standards and what they think a book should have in it is improving, frankly. And people want something of, of greater quality. This is a problem. It's like, essentially, a lot of offensive writing is actually just like lazy shitty simplistic writing that doesn't hurt anyone if it's about robots or pirates but hurts if it's about a marginalized group and so you only find out that you're maybe writing you may be dealing in cliches it once you once you hit a mar- once you run into a marginalized group and it's and it's you know, so I, I really understand the frustration, the outrage, the I've got no idea why this book didn't have multiple sensitivity readers. I have no idea why it didn't go through multiple sensitivity readers. I just, I can't, I, you know, I think Puffin, who published this, are out of their minds. I've got no, I, as soon as I saw the name months ago, I was like, what are you? You who thought this was a good idea? It is. It's on it. Like the the. I tell you what. Like the title is. The title is as offensive as if it was like. If as if, if like imagine if they he was publishing a book and it was called like my next door neighbours are terrorists, and it was a book where. Um, some uh, Syrian refugees move in next door to a character, right? Like, you'd be like, what? Are we not past that a little bit? Like, you'd be like, what? How? How is this helpful? And 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 then you know the argument would be, well, like, no, the narrator's wrong. But then people would go, well, why are you centering like a white character discovering that racism is bad? Like, so like, I do get a little bit what John has said where he's saying look this isn't for people who are deep in the discourse who have had the time and the inclination to discuss this a lot this is explicitly not for a trans audience this is for an audience who maybe haven't thought about this at all and it's to it's to win them over like it's to go for the people to people who haven't who maybe you know might be sort of on the edges and to tend to win them over, but quite reasonably, sort of, tra- various trans commentators have said, "Look, well, I don't, 
I don't want it to be up for debate. I don't I don't feel that happy about winning people round to my basic humanity and rights. Like I don't feel that's like an argument I want other people to be doing on my behalf or I want to do myself. Like that's not that's not okay. So I understand I understand what's gone and John's deleted his Twitter account and I, I think maybe that's a good idea and he should have a step back and he should have a he can have a think about what this has done. I'm sure it's caused him distress. Um I don't think he meant to hurt anyone. Um but I don't think his feelings are the most important thing here. Uh and that's my opinion on that. Now with the Ian McEwen question about you know the reason I kind of like hooked them together although they're very different stakes is it's like we've had lots of literary fiction authors sort of like dabbling in genre and often they end up doing something that has already been done being interviewed by literary fiction journalists who are ignorant of science fiction and fantasy who then write loads of cliches and broad things about science fiction and fantasy and how this person isn't writing science fiction and fantasy and then they're praised for like just walking through like some of the oldest most hoary old tropes in the world and doing a, a not as a not having any awareness of co- what's come before and again this is the thing about sometimes it comes down to a right because it can look and i do get a bit uncomfortable when it appears that fantasy or science fiction authors are policing their patch and going you're not one of us so how dare you try to write about spaceships or whatever? Especially as I'm a, uh, I'm a, I'm shelled under literary fiction, not fantasy. Everywhere I've been, at least, that that the, that my books don't get shelved in the science fiction and fantasy section. I would love them to be, but they never are. They're always in the literary fiction section, right? Well. You know, I always feel like, well, when's it going to come for me? When's that other shoe going to drop? Uh, so, but, you know, I thought Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro was dog shit. I thought it was fucking awful. Sorry, because I know loads of you love it. I know loads of people love it. You're not a bad person for loving it. I thought it was fucking dire. So boring. And just dealing with stuff that's been done to death. And so much better in science fiction. It's just it's so awful, so lazy. And the reason it resonated with me, you've got to think about why these things resonate with you, is it went, what if the marginalised people were middle class? Look, they're having violin lessons. Oh, the humanity, the world didn't make sense at all. But it just was calculated to go down well with a with a, with middle class parents. Who went, oh, those are like my children. Fuck you. And it was so rubbish. It was like, it was such an awful pastiche of a teenage voice. It was just not good. I, I, it, I feel completely gaslit that people say that was a good book. <laughs> I, I cannot understand it. I cannot fathom it. Like, on the line, it was bonus. I read so much of it. Look, and I really enjoyed Artist of a Floating... Artist of the Floating World. I quite enjoyed remains of the day i think like the fact that people are going it's such an incredible book slightly put me uh it made it difficult for me to just enjoy it as being pretty good uh you know i thought think quite lots of bits of remains of the day are very on the nose where he just meets characters who spout political 
opinions at him just 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 go here's my ideology and he has to, to react to them it's, it's again it's like literary fiction but in a way that makes it very easy to read off what the what we're supposed to take away from it in a way that i think is actually quite simplistic i you know i it's going to be a controversial opinion but i don't think there's actually much intellectual depth to remains of the day it it, it it's a very easy book to say teach and that's one of the reasons why I think it's kind of like kept in currency because it's fucking easy to teach that in a literature lesson because the what we're supposed to take off it and the quotes that you can like airlift out of it to support an argument are are obvious. It's really easy to read an ideology out of it, which is like, don't be a na- Nazi and try to love people before it's too late. Well, I guess those really were the remains of the day. End book. But like, Never Let Me Go was pandering to middle class audience, and that's why it did well. Um, and it was pandering to people who are a bit scared of genre by kind of like keeping all that to one side. And it just it like Rob, I've talked about this before, but like Robert Silverberg, who I realised recently has come out with some stuff that, um, if not explicitly racist, he seems to have a problem with black women being rewarded or praised in any way um i i don't know him personally maybe he's just made a series of incredibly infelicitous comments but you know if it quacks like a duck he certainly has said a bunch of stuff that's made me go oh that seems a bit shitty um anyway his sort of like personal politics aside he wrote a book called he wrote a short story called caught in the organ draft that it's not very good on the line you know his prose is not stellar but it's exactly the same sort of premise as Never Let Me Go. And it's just done so much better. And guess what? All the organs are going to, like, white old Republicans. And um, all the organs are being taken from, like, young, poor, working class people, right? And it's about, you know, and a lot of it is very explicitly about, like, Vietnam and the, and war and how people fucking are asked to give up not just like their spleen but like their legs or their eyes or their lives uh they're to donate they're they're asked to donate those for the wealthy wealthy elderly white men and and the and the draft it's clear in silverberg's thing like disproportionately hits working class disproportionately hits minorities because those are the people who are least able to resist it right and and that's a much more interesting book and it's more politically well short story and it's much more politically interesting and it comes 20 years before never let me go and i just think i just think that what was the what was it what was the name of the other one um the the quiet giant or the silent giant anyway i that his fantasy is his, his, his sort of like stumble into fantasy I just think I don't even think literary fiction readers liked that very much, um, and you know one of the you know last great acts of um, Ursula Le Guin's life was her attack on um, her takedown of Kazuo Ishiguro um, when he said he didn't want people to think he was writing fantasy, where she she basically wrote a really funny essay where she was like. <laughs> the problem is like this isn't very there's no danger of that because this is shit she said it was like watching somebody fall off a tightrope 
whilst shouting, oh no, will somebody think I'm an acrobat? Which I thought was very... And and and, and Goro, to give him his dues, did ap- apologise and say he'd not... That wasn't what he'd meant. And he and he did a, a, a chat with Neil Gaiman and I think he didn't mean it to be offensive. But it but doesn't make it not a shit book. Anyway, so that's what I think about... Oh, I feel sort of simultaneously good and dirty for having got off my... Uh, got my never let me go hate out i know loads of you like it i know you do i'm not saying you're a bad person i'm just saying think again you're wrong uh and i mean i've read well here's here's the sort of like more recent one so i've read um some of uh marlon james's uh new fantasy book um and some of it's really good, right? Like, he definitely he there's he's got he's definitely done his research. He like he writes some really cool fight scenes. There's just some bits in it that's just like this is fucking chill. This is so good. There's like monsters. There are like just cool capery bits. Where I was like, oh, like he, like there's like bits that are literary and like the language is good as well. But there's just bits where he's like having fun and it's like fucking rad and there's much and also i don't feel like whenever he's talked about it he's claimed to be really breaking new ground within fantasy he is writing his story and um i bounced off some of it a little bit i got in there's quite a lot of violence it's quite a lot of gendered violence at the beginning, sexualized violence against women. Um, there's not really any women characters, at least to start with, that have their own voices. Um, they tend to be sort of either sort of like shrewish harridans, or more commonly, their wives who've been have like been beaten up by their husbands or their sexual prizes. Um, and we're meant to sort of see the we see the main character tracker you know beat up or kill some men because they've um because they're you know it's implied that they uh abuse women or are rapists or something like that and 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 i i think with that's supposed to make us like tracker and um who does lots of sort of grim darky stuff like is constantly sort of beating people up or breaking their necks or gouging eyes out and um it just felt a bit grim dark it felt like stuff that we've been reading in fantasy for about 15 years now this kind of grim dark world where a character's constantly killing people but we're told it's okay because those people are like worse and normally they're worse because they do a rape um and then just as the story goes on it gets a little bit it just it gets a little bit meandering and I just I couldn't quite it just couldn't quite hold my attention I mean I freely admit like I'm a dad at the moment so I'm getting so little sleep it's very difficult for a book to hold my attention um and I just bounced off it other people have said that they really love it I mean (laughs) it being meandering and having boring bits that go on too long that should have been better edited I think would very comfortably place it within the pantheon of 
fantasy classics. Like I haven't got, I, I freely admit I have not got through Gormenghast. I can see like on the line it's good, but I just keep, I've had three runs here and I just keep getting to bits and then I put it down and don't pick it back up because there's bits that just aren't, because just, there's just bits that are less good as other bits. Look, Lord of the Rings has got some very boring bits in it. You know, I've not I've not read um, any of the Game of Thrones books, but everyone I know who's read them have gone, oh my God, there's some real droughts in it. There's some real, there's some shit bits where nothing's happening for a long time. Like, so maybe I'm just not, a big fan of epic fantasy that might be that might be the bottom line right but i do think that marlon james is not an example of a you know he won the booker prize but he doesn't he's not an example to me of an author who's come from literary fiction gone i could do this easy like he's fucking done the work he's turned up and also just because like some of it's really cool like he is not afraid of just writing stuff that's just rad that uh, so so less bothered about him but then with ian McEwan, it just sounds like i mean like he's doing stuff that was already done in the 30s like some of the st- stuff he, he's he's talking about what if someone wasn't human but thought and spoke like us i mean as people have pointed out online that was that's more or less frankenstein right which he doesn't appear to understand when he's he's talked about that himself. But like he, like Ian McEwan, you know, older authors can write great science fiction. Again, I'm gonna I, I refer you to um, I I I you know I, I refer you to Ursula Le Guin. Ian McEwan is seventy, and he apparently thinks that he's a genius, and he's not. He's shit. Like I read Atonement. And ironically, I would never forgive him for having put me through that book. Now, I feel a little bit like I'm policing my patch because it's uh, it's set in the summer of 1935 with a 13-year-old girl exploring and viewing a um, a uh, country house. So, of course, I feel a bit like, well, I can do better than that. And I have to like, it's like I'm, you know, me saying this is like me doing a diss track um, to take down one of the big dogs in the hip-hop game but it's just shit like the first actually the first chapter's good and then it just falls apart into him just like flopping his the flaccid dick of all his research out onto the page and going here's this here's a coat that would have been about at the time here's a type of you know lacquer that would have been available at the time here's a load of nurse stuff that i just lifted lock stock and barrel out of a war nurse's diaries and then when she complained and then and then when she complained about it you know denied that that was plagiarism blah 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 no so i think this will be as sort of like reactionary and bollocks as everything else he's come out with which is to say it'll be an easy read it won't really challenge the reader at all and you know he's like he's a, he's a seventy year old man, and he apparently isn't interested in learning anything new. So if that, I'm sure it, he will be the toast of the town at Hay on Wye this year. He will go to a few literary festivals, and he will be asked by a accommodating uh, chair. So tell us about this. Really interesting. What is what is the future? 
what is the interface for between man and machine? And he will, he will come out with his fucking lukewarm takes. I'm being becoming bitter now. Look, what I'm saying is like everyone's got a right to write science fiction and fantasy. You're allowed to write what the fuck you like. Um, it doesn't hurt anyone. Being and so here's the final thing. Actually, you've got a lot of right to write what you like. But what we're actually talking about is who's got the right to get stuff published. And and that would be, I think, the most obvious comeback to what I've said about anyone can write what you like. It's gross to sort of say only one person can write a certain type of legend or myth. Like that. that's kind of, that's proto-fascist. Blah, 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 blah. Well, yeah, the, the, the counter-argument is, yes, Tim, but publishing has shown a marked propensity to favour white middle class authors over authors of colour um, and to and, and, and the content as it prefers you know non-marginalised characters so the problem is oh yeah great you can write what you want but have you got the moral right to publish what you want because that's a very different thing and if there are only a certain amount of slots a year in trad publishing then do you want to be taking one of those up at the expense of someone from that culture who may do a, a much better job to you? Because the argument with Ian McEwan on a sort of, again, lower stakes level is loads of, is like this comes out and it's like, here's the a, here's a big novel about a robot and it just sucks up all the cultural oxygen. So everyone starts doing these pieces about AI and blah, blah, blah. And this becomes like a topic. And actually there's been like, dozens of novels published on this subject that none of these newspapers have given an inch of column space to because it's not written by Ian McEwan like that's and and and, you know I admit like I fully admit and it's gross to me that I feel this way but I do I'm so jealous of Marlon James being able to come out and talk about fantasy and being able to go and talk about it and being asked intellectual questions about it and it being appreciated and people going, this is really cool. But also it's like a, it's also literary fiction as well, isn't it? Um, I'm really, I'm really jealous because I'm scared when my novel comes out in two weeks that all of those conversations have been had and, and that like, I just can't, possibly compete with that that's because it's it's like it it's i can it's scary right to see because there's so little column space at the moment there's so little like space in newspapers and stuff for these discussions uh, on the radio and stuff that once they've happened producers tend to go well we've had that discussion now won't happen again now you know people say oh boohoo tim i mean this is my life, right? This is my ability to sell books is like how I can feed my daughter and stuff. So you, it might not be very important to you. Um, it is to me. And it might be ridiculous to worry about it anyway. But what I'm saying is... so if you, But imagine then... Maybe for some of you won't have to imagine. Imagine that you wanted to write about your life and the problems that you faced in, in it because you're, you know because you're part of a marginalised group. And then someone who's not part of that group comes in, writes a story, does it fucking badly, and then gets loads of pub publicity money, gets loads of column inches, and everyone goes, oh, look, this is the story. 
like imagine the small amount of irritation I get that Ian McEwan's doing a, a story where he's called a robot Adam. I mean, for fuck's sake. And then he's gone like, what if it was a bit like us? What if we weren't sure where the machines, who who, who was machines? And where's humanity? Uh, you know, like this, this stuff that's just been done again and again and again for decades. Imagine the frustration if I was writing something like that, right? And and I, I see this. So him and him being praised and it would be being told how intellectual it is. Imagine if you saw someone taking some... You know, like, I'll, all right, I'll, I'll do it with, like, mental health, with, like, me having all these difficulties with, you know, m- struggling with mental illness and being someone who manages severe mental illness at sometimes. If I saw someone who hadn't experienced all that, like, putting out a book and it all being about how this person was, like, a monster or an asshole, and then at the end they get, like, a... And it, and it perpetuated all these harmful stereotypes. I'd be furious. Especially if I was trying to write about that myself. I'd be so angry. Especially to see them just be asked questions and, and come out with it. Now, now I'm 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 jealous, but I'm not angry with Marlon James because he won the Booker Prize and he's put loads of effort into his books and he deserves the attention he's getting. I am irritated with the people who, with the media that, lift up people like Ian McEwan. I'm irritated with the media that gives space to people like John Boyne and let people like and give interviews to people like Graham Linehan and not to trans authors and trans poets and you know that's the thing that makes me angry. I'm I'm irritated at publishers who will continue to pop that Puffin didn't deal with this earlier that they didn't have anyone on staff who was like because and here's the thing about sensitivity readers you wouldn't need to have so many sensitive sensitivity readers if you hired diversely across publishing if you didn't require people to do unpaid internships that made it impossible um to work there and get onto the publishing ladder unless you have family in london who can support you and who you can live with while you do so so a lot of this is structural. A lot of these problems are structural. And I'm not the first person to say this. I'm repeating stuff that has been said uh, earlier and better by lots of other people. But, it, you know, like I can feel myself coming to the conclusion it's complicated. I still feel like fundamentally anyone can write what they want. You might not be able to publish what you want, but you can write what you want in the privacy of your own home. It doesn't actually hurt anyone if you write about a marginalised group and get it completely wrong, as long as you don't then put that out into the world in a way it can hurt other people. You can experiment with characters, you can work on stuff, you can try all different voices and try them on, and I think that's your sovereign right as an author, wherever you come from. Um, But like when I wrote about 1935, I did fuckloads, I did two years of research. Okay? (laughs) Like... And that's not a marginalised group, people from the olden times, right? People from years ago. I just did loads of research. And I tried to fully inhabit the characters I'm writing about. Uh, But there wasn't much moral hazard there. And I think there is. If you're writing about somebody... If you're you're centering a story around the marginalisation of someone. Like, you can't... If you write a story that isn't diverse, if you have no, if you have no black people in your story, 
there's only a very there's a very very few places that could be happening where you have you haven't essentially erased them like you if you don't have any people of color in your story i just it there's very very few places where that could be happening where that isn't a political choice that you've made where you aren't distorting reality if you don't have any gay people in your story um there's very 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 few places that that could be possibly happening where again you're not distorting reality where you're not actually like erasing and excluding people so and i think you can write viewpoint characters who are different to you in all sorts of ways um you and you don't and you can't and you don't necessarily have to please anywhere everyone i just think if the main central selling point of your book and the other thing is like because like i was saying at the beginning because books um often sell based on controversy or or issue of the month if your book is just issue led it's easier to get column space but you are taking that away from other people who might be better placed to have that conversation now i think the media has got a fucking responsibility to start working a bit harder not to just to to give space to people who know what it's about in the same way that you wouldn't go oh we need to someone to be like a political correspondent about syria oh we'll just get this fucking random dude who <laughs> this comment we're not going to get like a commenter off the bottom of the article and go can you be our syria correspondent have you ever been nah but i've watched the news i know a bit like you would like the newspapers have got a, a, a responsibility to get people on who know what the fuck they're talking about same thing with uh, publishers same thing with newspapers and i think we should be holding them to account as well um before authors who don't really know what they're talking about show their whole ass to the world um in a way that hurts other people in a way that could be damaging um i think you've got the right to write about what you like i think it can be done really well i don't think you have the right i think you're allowed to write flawed characters I think you're allowed to write characters with offensive views. I think you're allowed to write viewpoint characters with offensive views. I think you're allowed to write characters from all different backgrounds who go through all different life experiences. But you don't get to necessarily have the right for that work to be published and you don't necessarily have the right for that work to escape criticism. I think I'm going to stop there. I think... That is about as coherent as I'm going to get with a cold. Um, those are my thinkings on it. I hope that's been sort of interesting and useful and will have sparked stuff in you. I, I know none of this stuff is held... I hope I hold it lightly enough to, you know... I, I spend a lot of time reading about it. And I think we've also got to remember, before I finish, that some people have got more time to invest in... You know, when people talk about educating yourself. Well, like if you're a single mum with three kids who are like you're having to make their their dinner every night and you're having to work a full time job, um, you might not have the same amount of time as say a recent university graduate who doesn't have a family. Uh, so I think there's quite a lot of classist classist assumptions in how much time people have got to um, read think pieces couched in language not aimed at them. Um, there's very little effort at onboarding and i do think that john Boyne probably felt like his novel was supposed to be reaching out was supposed to be onboarding people who aren't necessarily part of the discourse i think it's a very enclosed group that we have discussing social issues um very bad extremely bad at outreach uh and that outreach is not 
the responsibility of of uh, marginalized groups but then when other people try and do the outreach sometimes they don't do it in a way that that a member of that group would like and um that can cause problems so it's it's very complicated uh and i've got i hope i've got empathy if not sympathy for people who are involved uh right across the board um this isn't me doing a trumpy trumpish um there's good people on both sides i don't have i don't have sympathy for people pushing fascist ideology i don't think their heart's in the right place i think they're peddling hate to be clear and i don't have um i don't have uh i don't have sympathy uh for people being transphobic either i i, I don't think that that's in any way okay so there there's i think i've been pretty clear right i'm gonna go and take some more um medicine um i hope you have a really nice day if you stuck with me to the end bless you i've got a coffee page if you ever want to give me some money to help keep the lights on i've got a book coming out in two weeks called the ice house will be lovely to see you at any of the events i do for that right i'm gonna go now take care have a lovely writing week bye don't say bye tim bye